Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today, we are in my office here at 10100 Santa Monica Boulevard in my extended cheese cracker glass office. And there are literally one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people in this office here to see my guest today, Marty Colner. Why are they here today? Maybe because things that he's worked on have been nominated for approximately 40 Emmy Awards. Maybe it might be nice to actually be around somebody that rubs off on you, that actually has touched or has actually been close to a statuette on a table. And that would be Marty Kallner, one of the most prolific directors in terms of variety television, comedy, music, special events that you will ever meet in the world. As a matter of fact, it could be argued if they use that term that's been overused so much that if there were the Mount Rushmore for variety directors and musical directors and comedy directors, Marty Colner's face and another part of his body would be on that mountain. I'm not going to say which part, but anyway... As you know, I always start off these podcasts in a very unique way where I look at my guest and I tell you something that comes to my mind and I don't know what I'm going to say just yet. So as I transition to that, I will say thank you again so much for everything. You guys have been so supportive. Last week's episode with Steve Levitan was off the charts and you guys really supported that tremendously. 
and it's incredible how many comments I've got and how wonderful you've been in terms of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and the messages are incredible and I'm very, very grateful for that. Also, thanks for going to the Amazon banner on my website. Again, you buying stuff on there helps my kids and it doesn't cost you anything and I appreciate the support there. It really means a lot. And as I look at my guest Marty Colner today, this is what comes to mind right now, just as I just like that. I got a chance to work with Marty Colner, met with a bunch of directors about 10 years ago because a client of mine at the time, Dane Cook, who had only really done any hard ticket dates in comedy clubs, the largest venue that Dane Cook ever probably worked up to that point was probably the Comedy Connection in Faneuil Hall, which held about 500 people in Boston. He'd done theaters at colleges, but colleges aren't really considered hard-ticket dates. Even if they do sell tickets, a lot of times they sell tickets for reduced rate for the students. And Dane may have done a little theater here or there or whatever, but my memory serves me correctly. He'd only really done a comedy club. And in Boston, definitely only sold out the 500-seat rooms at the Comedy Connection. He might have done multiple shows there, four, five, six shows, so he might have sold 2,500, 3,000 seats. But when Dane started, I'll never forget this, and he was noticing what was happening with the digital world and the internet world before any comedian ever really understood it. And I remember this, and one thing I want to give you some insight into Dane Cook, because there's been a lot of things said about Dane Cook, and I represented Dane for 17 years. And one of the things I want to share, which is really, really an incredible thing that I don't think I've ever shared, I always have the mantra on these podcasts that I want to say everything on the podcast that I would say if the person were in the room with me. So I'm going to share this, and I think he would be okay with it. So when he first came to Los Angeles, he was living in a studio apartment off of Fountain for $700 a month. And a friend of mine had found an apartment in the La Fontaine, which was a famous apartment building that if you're in Los Angeles, you can see when you pass Fountain and Crescent Heights. It's an old building, brick. John Belushi had stayed there, Steve Martin, Bette Midler. And I remember I found an apartment for him there through my friend that was this massive place that had 30-foot ceilings, but it was really expensive at the time. It was probably close to like $2,500, $3,000. This is like 15, 20 years ago. But he looked at it and he said, I can do this. I can make this work. But he wasn't making an enormous amount of money. But he looked at it and he said, listen, this will help me psychologically get the place I want to get to. And I love this. And there was a special place for his office in there. And I remember coming back there a year later just to visit him. And he said, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. And I did something that you don't normally do in somebody's house. 
I took a step back into his office and sort of looked around when I wasn't invited to look around that little office. And I saw all these yellow post-it notes all over all the bookcases everywhere, all his memorabilia. And I started looking at them, getting closer. I'm going to book a sitcom where I'm going to be the lead. I'm going to do Letterman. I'm going to do major motion pictures where I'm the star. And I looked at the last one and it said, I'm going to have my own HBO hour special. And then I heard him coming out of the bathroom and I came out of the office and pretended that I didn't look at anything. And I knew in my mind as a manager that I also had the same goals as the artist I was working with, but they were sort of spoken yet unspoken because he wrote them down. And you're probably wondering how this ties in to my guest today, because when it came time to finding a director after I went in with Dane Cook and met with Chris Albrecht at HBO and pitched him Tourgasm with a three-minute tape that we made on the road after Dane Cook invested $300,000 of his own money to do a bus tour across the country in colleges and told me, Barry, you're going to sell this to HBO. And I said, well, what if I don't sell it? He said, oh, you're going to sell it, Barry. I said, what if I don't sell it? He said, you're going to sell it, Barry. I said, I know, but what if we don't sell it? And he said, hey, I guess I'll have the most expensive home movie in the world. We showed it to Chris Albrecht. We pitched the show Tourgasm with an HBO Hour special, even though Dane had never sold even a 500-seater in Boston. But we pitched it to him. And how did we do it? Because Dane, when he was starting, when Napster came out, he would put clips of himself and make them in that office. And at the end of every clip, it said danecook.com. And he made all these clips, but we really didn't have a website. His website was just photos on a website. But he said to me, Barry, I need you to negotiate with the guy who did the United States Army website. That's the best website there is out there. This is 20 years ago, 15 years ago. I said, okay, hardest negotiation I ever had. The guy wanted $25,000. Now, at that time, Dane only had about $27,000 in the bank, but he authorized me to do it. And there was the first comedian that I know of in history that had a website that was moving and had not just static pictures, but animation and movement and pages and interaction. And then he was able to put the Napster clips up. And then he said, I'm going to answer every email that I get from every fan, which he did. And then Facebook took off, and he was the first comedian to really tap into that, but most importantly, MySpace, where he tapped into that and gained over 2.5 million followers because he was the first one to grab onto it. So when we went into the office at HBO and pitched a special, at Boston Garden, in the round, Chris Albrecht took a chance on us. 
I was pitching an hour special for a guy to sell out two shows, 39,000 people in one night when he'd only sold 500 seats, maybe over six nights, 3,000 people. And when it came time to finding a director, Chris Albrecht, CAA, and everybody else thought to themselves, there's only one guy that could possibly be right to do this job properly. And that was Marty Kalner. And so we met with Marty. We had a great meeting. And Marty is the epitome of the kind of artist that you want working with another artist. He's a brilliant man. He's a visionary. He's a genius. And he's calm. He might not be calm when he's in the editing bay. And he might not be calm at home. But when he's with an artist... He's calm, and he makes artists feel safe, and Dane felt safe, especially knowing that he had to sell 39,000 tickets for the first time in his life. We got a promoter, we put the tickets on sale, and Dane wanted to do a pre-sale for his fans only with a code. We said, okay, the promoter, Bill Blumenreich in Boston, said, okay. He said, but we haven't put an ad out yet. Dane said, I don't think you're going to need an ad, Bill. In 72 hours, the first show sold out. We rolled over to the second show. The second show sold out on the pre-sale in eight days. There was no ads, no radio, no print, no nothing. The promoter didn't have to do anything. Marty didn't have to get any audience, and we were golden. And HBO gave us a $1.8 million budget to shoot this show with, I believe, 16 or 18 cameras. And there was only one man that we knew of that was going to do a great job with 16 to 18 cameras, and that was Marty Kalner. And that special turned out to be Vicious Circle, And it was an amazing launch for Dane. It was an incredible special. It was like no other special that anybody had ever seen. And Dane's life changed forever after that special. Now, one thing I want to point out before Marty Kulner falls asleep is that the relationships you have with people get strained when you're doing specials with artists. Because I feel like I have a creative spark in me And I love watching things over and over again. And as my producers here know with this podcast, after they edit it 76 times. So when I went through my notes for the special, my notes were probably five pages long. I sent them to Marty Kulner. I got a call from Marty Kulner. It was the first time I ever heard Marty Kulner get mad. He said, Barry, what the fuck is this? Why are you sending me five pages of notes? I said, well, I want things to be perfect. I like these shots a certain way. I don't like the empty seat here. When he turned here, it seemed like it was a little off here. And he said, Barry, I did the Rolling Stones. Mick fucking Jagger didn't give me this many notes. As a matter of fact, I don't think he gave me any notes. And we got off the phone, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, my relationship with Marty is over. But we worked through it. We worked together. And 
even somebody as annoying as me, he figured out a way to work with. And the way the special came out, to me, I've never seen a comedy special like that before, and I don't think I ever will again. And it's a testament to how Marty operates. And so to close off this long, long cold open, I just want to say a couple of things. If you're an artist, don't be afraid to have goals. Don't be afraid to write them down in ink and put them on your office and look at them every day. And don't be afraid to set your sights on those goals because if you work hard enough and are dedicated enough, like Dane Cook was, you can accomplish the goals that only people dream about. And he did so many things that no other comedian had done before him. And when you look at comedians and social networking now, you should give credit to Dane Cook because he's the guy who started it all. And in terms of the kind of people that you want to work with in your life and any kind of business, you want to surround yourself with people like Marty Colner, a guy who's calm, who's professional, who's first class, who's worked with the best people in the world, and who can make you feel like you can fly as an artist or a worker in anything you do and can give you the platform to soar and to really go without a net and explore your greatest potential. And I can guarantee you, if you follow these things that Dane Cook and Marty Colner have done in their lives, I guarantee you, you're going to have an extraordinary career. Here we go in three, two. There ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now the People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. 
before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very happy, very excited. I got Marty Colliner here. This is like old times, sitting around, being calm, and maybe he'll yell at me for a little bit after this is all over with. Who knows? So I'm going to give him the proper introduction, and here goes. Marty, try to just get the insulin ready. Marty Colliner is an award-winning director and producer known for his work with legendary artists such as Robin Williams, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, The Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, Cher, Justin Timberlake, and many, many more. He has created music videos, comedy specials, and TV shows, and has directed some of the biggest artists in the world, including Bon Jovi, Kiss, ZZ Top, Garth Brooks, Dane Cook, Will Ferrell, and a plethora of others. He is the creator of HBO's fantastic show that is the favorite of mine and a favorite of some of the people in this room, Hard Knocks, and has been nominated and won numerous Emmys, MTV Video Music Awards, DGA Awards, and Cable Ace Honors. Colner started out doing television news and became the director of the Boston Celtics for WBZ-TV, which led him to producing the Wimbledon Tennis Tournament for HBO, starting a long relationship with that network. Relationships, everybody. He went on to direct numerous groundbreaking sports, comedy, and music specials that increased HBO to a base of zero to around 20 million subscribers. He was a powerhouse force at that network and is responsible for helping build the careers of Jerry Seinfeld, Andy Kaufman, and Robin Williams, and so many others. He earned his Cable Ace Awards and Grammy nominations after directing television for comics 
such as George Carlin, Steve Martin, Billy Crystal, and Pee Wee Herman, who now has a new movie coming out on Netflix with Judd Apatow. Colner created his own company, Cream Cheese Films, after the substantial success he gained in television. He had gone to direct more than 200 music videos and was known for the signature creative touch he adds to his work, which can be seen in videos such as Cher's If I Could Turn Back Time, Aerosmith's Amazing, The Ultimate Song of Teenage Rebellion, Twisted Sister's Anthem, We're Not Gonna Take It, as well. Colner helped define a generation of music television watchers by appealing to their hidden desires and reflecting their values through his work. Colner's work on Aerosmith's Cryin' was voted MTV's best video of all time. That same year, Colner earned his second Grammy nomination for his HBO production, Madonna Live Down Under the Girly Show. Colner has gone on to produce and direct for Justin Timberlake in his Emmy-winning Justin Timberlake Future Sex Love Show, George Lopez and George Lopez's American Mexican, and Dane Cook's Vicious Circle that we mentioned earlier. Colner then went on to produce and direct the late Robin Williams Live on Broadway, which was nominated for five Emmy Awards. He then went on to partner with Chris Rock to direct and produce his stand-up comedy special Kill the Messenger, which had been nominated for three Emmys. Following that, Colner directed and produced Will Ferrell's fantastic Broadway show, You're Welcome, America, which was also nominated for three Emmy Awards. Colner has earned five MTV Music Awards and six Cable Ace Awards. His work in television has earned him 37 Emmy nominations, and his work on Jerry Seinfeld's I'm Telling You for the Last Time, live on Broadway, earned him a nomination for the prestigious Directors Guild of America Award. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, the person who yelled at me, Marty Colner. I don't remember yelling at you. <laughs> I really don't, but if you say I did, I probably did. You tore me a new colon. Oh, we have another word for that. I know. <laughs> you don't remember yelling at me? I don't remember because I, you know, in, in my life I've gotten so few notes that, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure it's possible. Did I give you more notes than anybody in your history? I don't know. I erased it. <laughs> <laughs> you probably just pressed delete, didn't you? Yes. God damn it. I pressed delete on that part, but I didn't press delete on the incredible experience we had doing Vicious Circle, which is, you know, one of my proudest shows. I mean, it was a, it was a big challenge. It was in the round in Boston. It was really fun, and it came out, you know, better than I really expected it to. Maybe that was all the notes. I don't even allow artists in the editing room. You know, it's just my You allowed style. me in the editing room. You weren't, you? you weren't the comedian. Oh. Because I don't think artists are really a good judge of themselves when they look at themselves. I think that they see them differently. They see themselves differently than they really are. And, you know, I'm there to say, you know, it's my eye. You have to trust. Trust it. You'll be fine. And um, it's worked out pretty well for the artists I've worked with. So you're trying to tell me if Mick Jagger said, hey, buddy, can I just come to the editing bay? You'd say no? Well, he didn't, he didn't really ask. I can tell you that Mick Jagger usually hires a director once 
and I worked with him seven times, so I guess he was happy with the work. I shot him live in Madison Square Garden in New York. I shot him in Rio de Janeiro in front of two million people on the beach, Copacabana Beach. Shot him in Buenos Aires, Amsterdam, Paris, London, Toronto, to name a few. So I worked with the Stones quite a bit over about a year and a half of, of my life. It was Stones, Stones, Stones. And, you know, it was spectacular. You know, when you travel with the Stones, it's like traveling with the president. You know, with all the motorcades and the, you know, the private jets. And, you know, it was fun. But, you know, I took the position that Mick Jagger wasn't just, wasn't just Mick Jagger, that while he was the brains, the balls and the beating heart was Keith Richards. So I pretty much gave him almost as much airtime as I gave Mick. And that had never happened before or since because the tendency is in the music breaks just to cut to Mick dancing around because he makes a great visual. But Keith is doing such amazing work that if you accent the broadcast with Keith, it turns out to be a much richer experience for the viewer. And to Mick's credit, he liked that. You know, I think he was kind of tired of carrying the whole burden visually. But Keith was wonderful visually. And as a matter of fact, you know, when I write my book, I'm thinking about titling it uh, Keith Sent Me Flowers because he sent me flowers after the show in New York. And he's the kind of guy that usually pulls knives. So I was like in shock when the flowers came and said, thanks for recognizing. And, you know, we became pretty close after that. That's incredible. It seems to me... The reason why you directed The Stones seven times, if I could simplify it, besides your great work, the other people who directed thought, okay, I got to service Mick. Correct. I got to take Mick. If I show Mick and do all about Mick, then he'll give me the job again because he's the guy who probably makes all the decisions. Right. You took a risk and you said, hey, you know, I'm going to do it this way, and I'm going to show Keith more than he's ever been shown before because that's the way I feel it should be, and that risk paid off. Every job and every show I've ever directed has risk in it. Every music video has risk. I push the envelope on every one, every special. I, I always have a different take and always take a risk. You know, and Sometimes when you enter into the unknown, it's a little scary. But if you make it through, the reward is unbelievable. So we were took a big risk on Dane Cook shooting in the round. You know, it's quite a difficult thing to do. Just ask Louis C.K. when he tried it. It's not easy. He didn't have you. No, but he shot it in the same place I shot George Carlin in the round, interestingly enough. But that was... He didn't have you. No, I guess not. Uh, but... Um, you know, but I've always taken risks. I remember when I did Mark Anthony in Madison Square Garden, I did live. I did one shot that lasted eight minutes. You know, it was a big risk. One mistake and everything would go down. And, you know, in all the music videos. You know, I think I'm most proud of my music videos I mean, because they would all jump to number one. And they were always because we took risks. We always gambled. So tell our audience the biggest risk that you felt you ever took with an artist and tell us the one that paid off the most that you thought was the greatest risk and the artist was happy. But also if you don't mind, and I know it's going to be hard, 
tell us about a risk you took that didn't pay off that might have damaged you or damaged your relationship? Well, there are none that didn't pay off, to be honest with you. Um, I think the biggest risk was when I shot share on the battleship Missouri where the Japanese surrendered World War II. It's a sacred ship. We couldn't get permission. We finally got permission from the White House. And, you know, we got there, and I took the position that what I was doing was good for the Navy. So I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, and the Navy took the position that, you know, you're lucky to be here. You better play our game. And I met this liaison, and he said, you know, we have a few provisos. I said, well, I have a few provisos of my own. And what I didn't realize was was that, I don't know if you remember the video, but, you know, her ass is completely tattooed. And she said to me, you know, what should I wear? I said, well, your share. I said, you have to be outrageous. So she calls Bob Mackey up. And he makes her this the famous designer, famous designer, the most famous designer. And he makes her like this body thong, basically, is what it was. You know, it just covered her private parts and nothing else. And we're on the ship. And when it came time, I also DP'd it, you know, and I just didn't just Which direct means, it for those of you who don't know about the director of photography, I think this is important. Explain the difference of the role of a director and a director of photography, and why most directors have both and don't do it all themselves. Well, the producer is the businessman, the director is the artist, and the director of photography lights and paints the picture. Normally, it's the director's vision. I thought that if I could eliminate that step, I would get to my vision much easier. So I would say in about half my videos, I was the director of photography. On the other half, they were just too complicated and outside my expertise. So I, I hired big-time directors of photography. Haskell Wexler, who just passed away, Gabriel Beristain, and Andre Prokoviak. These are all big Hollywood guys. You know, it's funny, you know, you said about being calm. Haskell Wexler told me my biggest talent was creating an environment which encouraged people to be their most creative. I think that's the calm part because my sets kind of sound like this, you know, and because we're secure and everybody knows what they're doing and they're encouraged to be themselves, I benefit because I encourage everybody to give me their ideas and then I take the ones I like, discard the ones I don't like and take credit for them all. So it works out pretty well. <laughs> But anyway, getting back when to When I share, give notes, the first line in my notes that you deleted, and I always do this, I always say, one man's opinion, use as little or as many as you want. I have no attachment to it. That's my first sentence before you deleted it. I think I remember that sentence. <laughs> but um, I think that was a sentence I liked. Um, but anyway, so... You know, we're doing this video, and I, and I, you know, told her to be outrageous, and it came time for rehearsal. So, like the dutiful director, I walked back to the Winnebago to escort her to the set. The door opened, and she was standing there in that body thong, and I froze. I was, like, in shock because I told her to get outrageous. I didn't know she was going to be almost naked. She walked down the steps. Now, when you say a body thong, because I don't remember, like you're saying that she just had a patch over her 
cash and prizes, as Dane would say, a thong, and then something over her nipples. That's it. Skin all over everyone. It was all net and skin, and uh -huh. it, it was it was amazing. I don't know if anybody here remembers it, but so she walked out, and I just froze. So she just kept going, and she walked past me, and I turned, and I saw her ass was completely tattooed, and I said, how clever, tattoo underwear. I didn't have a clue what it was. So we get on the ship for rehearsal. Now, this ship has nu nukes on it, and, you know, I had her straddling the guns, which was kind of risky, and I had this liaison this little guy named steve honda and meanwhile the men were going crazy the sailors were going absolutely nuts this is right after Sherrod done moonstruck she was about as hot as you could be won the academy award won the academy award and uh this song was bringing her back musically she had a thousand comebacks the song was if, if i, I could, could turn, turn back, back time. time and, and so how old was she at the time of the special who knows um 40 so Steve Honda says to me, he said, Marty, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. He said, she can't wear that. This was the liaison to the government. To the government. He said, she can't wear that. He said, the women in the Navy are going to go absolutely crazy. And the gay go, women of the Navy or the straight women? He didn't mention the, Just the uh, preference, <laughs> sexual preferences, but I assume that there were some. So... I said, okay, okay. And finally, after going back, he says, I'm going to end up in the Aleutian Islands. I was kind of ignorant. I thought the Aleutian Islands were in the Caribbean. I had no idea they were north in Alaska. But it's the equivalent of the Russians saying you're going to Siberia. Right. So finally, I said to him, okay, Steve, you tell her. He didn't have the cojones to tell her. So we did the video. The women in the Navy went crazy. MTV said, we're only going to air this after 9 o'clock at night. And for the next 11 months, they aired it precisely at 9 o'clock every night to the point where some TV shows were adjusting their times to come on at 9.03. I mean, it was fantastic. I go on the uh, CBS Morning News to uh, talk about it. And, you know, I was in L.A. They're in New York. You're talking to a camera. There's nobody there. There's a picture. And this girl, Faith Daniels, said to me, she said, Marty Colner, is there anything you wouldn't do in a video? I said, I wouldn't get up there and dance like that. And she said, and the world's a better place for it. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, a, that was a big risk because of, this, of, of the, how sacred it was. And it came out fantastic. And, uh, you know, I thought it would help the recruiting. And it ultimately did got it risks are so important i'm so glad you touched on that but you're the kind of guy when you're around you you wouldn't even think that you would live on the edge or anything of that nature you've worked with so many great artists and so many things have happened to you but obviously if you take a hundred artists that you've worked with there's going to be the artist that just is like okay uh whatever you say I'm just going to go on and do my thing, and I'll get off. And Well, that's what they all say, quite honestly. I mean, I, I really— They all say that. Pretty much. I, I really don't get much interference. Um, there is no way that a stand-up comedian— I know. You wouldn't think so. —says, that's okay. I will safely say that there is no way that George Carlin says, 
I don't want to look at the cut. I mean, it's impossible. They all want to look at the cut, but not until the cut's finished. Okay, so, you know, I've never, I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm just lucky. Maybe I care more than anybody. Listen, I grew up in the Midwest, so I have Midwestern tastes, which really run the country. And Define Midwestern taste. Well, the difference between New York taste and L.A. taste and Midwestern taste. Midwestern taste is every man. New York is elitist, L.A. is elitist. So if you go by the taste of the, those two cultures, and you're going to end up not creating pop culture, but following pop culture. The Midwest really is where it all starts. So I always took the position that I am not going to leave this room until I love every single frame. It can stand my test. It'll stand anybody's test. And I didn't do it for anybody but myself. And I was so hard on myself and so difficult on myself and finessed and changed. I used to satellite my videos, you know, two days before they aired to New York. At that, By the time I was done massaging all this footage, there wasn't much left to criticize. So if anybody had a real criticism, it was pretty much ego rather than, you know, the real, the real balls and the real you know, substance of what it was. And I don't deal well with ego. And along the way, most of the artists, I could try to think of some that didn't. I can only think of one that I had a difficulty with, and that was Pee Wee Herman. And that's someone who I discovered. So, but he was a little bit of a megalomaniac, and that's the only one I can really think of. I did have an issue with Dane at one point because he did what I thought was the funniest joke, and he wanted it out, and I lost that battle. So sometimes it happens. and Refresh our audience what that joke was. Okay, here was the joke. Because I remember this. Dane hit a set routine. All right. Well, I want to just say this. Dane had a set routine for the first show because the first show had to be 90 minutes because there was a turnover. This isn't a comedy club. You're turning over 19,000 people. A comedy club, you turn over 300. And you turn over a comedy club, they still give you an hour to turn but it over. But he had hunks. Okay. But in the late show, he did two hours and 40 minutes. But they were still all his hunks. That's true. Okay. And they were all his material that was tried and true and tested. And his real genius, which he failed to recognize, was his improvisational skills. All right. And he was insecure in those skills. So at one point, someone, some two girls in the front row said, it's my birthday. Just come on up here. Let me give you a kiss. He gave her a kiss, and she said, okay, it's your birthday. Show me your tits. She said, I can't. My mother's out there. He says, well, tell her to show us her tits, too. And I thought it was absolutely the funniest line in the whole two hours. And it was like a standing ovation. You know, it, it was, was crazy. just hysterical. And I always believed that, you know, funny is funny. All right, there's no rules when it comes to funny. And even today when I send out emails, I only send out emails that make me laugh out loud. You know, because I get thousands of them, but the ones that I really like, I circulate through what I call my joke folder. And so I had a big issue with Dane about that, and I thought he was wrong. But ultimately, you know, he was still my boss, and so I had to capitulate. But that... 
very rarely happened. I had such trust from my artists. When those arguments happened, they usually went with me, including one with Whitney Cummings when she did on the last show. She did a improvisational joke, which I thought was hysterical. She went with it. She later told me she got more comments about that joke than anything. So, you know, what can I say? It, uh, it all comes from an honest place. I believe that the product's the only thing that matters. I don't care if you like me or hate me. I just care that when that leaves my hand, goes on the screen, that the audience is going to love it. And my music videos shot to number one almost immediately. And that's because I was doing it for myself. My, I wasn't trying to think, well, if I do this, he'll like it, or I do that. You know, I just said, I have to like it. You know, what's fascinating about what you're saying here? If you were to take a meeting for the first time, let's say, with Whitney Cummings, who I represented for about seven years, and you were to sit down with her, and your first meeting with her, you were to say to her, listen, I just want you to know, Whitney, this is about me. I'm doing this for me. You do your thing. You're the artist. I'll service you. But when I edit this special, I'm doing it for me. You wouldn't get that job. Well, I never said that. I know, but I'm just saying what you have yeah, in your mind. But I was in my head all the time. I never said it. It was just kind of derivative, and it just kind of happened. No, I know, but that's what's fascinating about you as an artist, because you're yeah. an artist too, and Absolutely. people don't understand all those things about that. Now, one thing that's interesting about the Dane Cook show, and here I am, and I'm telling you my opinion of why I believe Dane did that from 17 years of experience, and I would wonder if he would tell me I'm wrong or not. He kept a huge improv in there where a guy was heckling. He got off the stage. He ran all the way up, probably 50 rolls Genius. with this guy. He had this great interaction with him, the back and forth, and he came back. It probably was like three minutes. Fantastic, one of the greatest improvisational moments of the special. Right. Was with a guy. Okay. He knew that his audience, his core audience, was guys who brought their girlfriends there. And a lot of the girls loved his shows, and he had a huge female following. But he didn't want to alienate the female following by bringing a mother and saying to a mother, hey, show me your... He didn't want to take the moms and say to the moms, don't watch him, he's rude, he said for my daughter to take right. off her top, and then he told me to take off her top. Even right. if it was the funniest moment, he didn't want to take the value of his audience away by having people try to undermine what he was doing. I agree with you, but it was still the funniest moment. <laughs> okay. And ultimately that's all that matters in comedy. Comedy is not supposed to be safe. Comedy is not supposed to be calculating. Comedy is really on the edge when it's the funniest. Okay. And well, I thought to me that special, that was an interesting special because many people have different opinions about the special and about what happened. And I can share with you this because I was with Dane every step of the way. What happened before the special was supposed to shoot is Dane got a movie, his first major movie that he was starring in for Lionsgate called Employee of the Month with Jessica Simpson, Harlan Williams, Andy Dick. Brilliant. And it was working like every day, like even Saturdays, these 12 hour days. Plus he was a producer and he was involved in the whole thing, and he didn't have any time to go up, and there was no place to go up. There was one comedy club, but 
you know, when Jessica Simpson is around, and if you've ever been around Jessica Simpson in those days, this was a woman that was like, I don't even know how to explain it. She, she oozed sexuality. And if she said to you, come out to dinner with me, or hang with us, our crowd over here, or come out to this club with us, I don't care how strong of an artist you were and what kind of a work ethic you had, and Dane had a great work ethic. Oh, yeah. You could not deny this woman. You had to be around her. It was like a car accident. And every day there'd be a different thing in the press, and she'd say, I don't know how that got out in the press. Yet you knew that she was orchestrating something. And so by the time the special came around, believe it or not, Marty, he'd only run the set probably two to five times the way he wanted to run it. Well, he did a brilliant job that night. So, And he did an amazing job, which I couldn't believe what he did. And the bit that stands out to me that I always look at as probably one of the most brilliant bits that I've ever seen in a special was the atheist bit, which was a 10-minute bit that, ironically, Louis C.K. had said that Dane had taken material 92 seconds of material out of these seven hours of material that Dane Cook had. One of the bits that purportedly they said that Dane stole was an itchy asshole bit. Ever get an itchy asshole uh, and want to scratch it? That was one of the bits. The other bit was naming of your kids' names that were sound effects. Upon further research, it was found out that Louis had done that bit, but upon further research, it was shown that Steve Martin did that bit in 1974. So it's not like these itchy asshole and this other bit were like the amazing, thought-provoking, well-written pieces, but that's what happens, and that can hurt a career of somebody. But the atheist bit, to me, was a bit that I never, ever seen anything like it. I never seen a story told the beginning to end like that and the conclusion of it and acted out the way it was. It was a theatrical piece. And to me, if I were to take any one of Dane Cook's bits and say that that's the one that I'd want to put in a time capsule that's and open one. up 50 years from now. It was now, genius. The and one. they all accuse each other of stealing stuff. I mean, that's, that's just... But they don't really to it consciously you know just but everybody's you know we're all part of things that we take in you know i'm not even aware do you ever shoot somebody special let's say i'm not going to say a name of somebody you get the gig you go out to see them or you just watch the hour hour and a half that they send you and you watch it and in the whole brilliant piece is a three-minute piece that let's say 25 years ago you shot on Carlin's 12th special or that Steve Martin did, do you go to the artist and you say, listen, I just have to tell you something. I shot George Carlin in 1987, and let me just show you he did this bit. I don't want you to get in trouble, or you just don't say anything. I don't ever say anything, and I never really saw anybody completely copy. They used to accuse Robin Williams of stealing everything. It was above me. I I thought every comedian I've worked with has done their own take. There's a lot of stuff that's similar. And no, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, again, it's funny. It's funny. That's, that's, my, that's my mantra and my credo. Makes me laugh. I'm, I'm behind it. 
it's not funny. I, I will say, I don't think this works. You know, I mean, you, here's the way I treat artists. And I tell them this. I'm going to give you a lot of suggestions. Take what you want. Okay? I will not be offended if you don't take it. Boy, that sounds familiar. Take what you want. Do what you wish. But I'm going to throw them out there. That seems to work for me. That's why you read that first sentence and then deleted after that. <laughs> Are there certain circumstances when you're shooting an artist that you know you're going to have to deal with? Like, for instance, the Robin Williams special that you did, which was incredible. Robin Williams was always a guy who literally, on the sweat scale from 1 to 100, was always 150. I mean, the guy started off with a shirt that was dry, and 15 minutes in, the shirt is a different color. It's all wet. He's soaking wet. Many times he doesn't even use a towel. How do you shoot an artist where it just goes from, like, a beginning shot of something to where it's just craziness? Is there a certain thing you suggest? Well, you turn it to your advantage, okay? And you say, okay, this guy's working as hard, all right? So what? He sweats. Big deal. It's not He's not sweating like Richard Nixon was sweating. He's sweating because he's working hard. And he also, this was live, had a table with about 30 bottles of water on it. Now, what I do when I shoot these people, it's very difficult live, okay? It really is. Is I go to see them 30, 40 times so that when I'm shooting them, I'm on stage with them and I can feel them and I can feel what they're going to do. And I have a very set plan. And if you have a set plan, you can improv when something goes the other way and then just come right back to your plan. So it works for me. But I'm a big believer in preparation and a big believer in homework. You know, whether it was the Stones or Justin Timberlake or anybody, you know, I just go, Madonna, I just go and see them and see them and see them. Robin, because I knew it was going to be live, and I know how fast he is, was pretty much the hardest to prepare for. And he used to do, and, and what happened was, is that I talk about risk. This is inspired by All in the Family, who John Rich, the director, used to take these amazing close-ups of Carol O'Connor and get laughs on his cuts which means he was taking the comedy up a notch from where the comedy was. And I felt I wanted to do that with Robin. I wanted to get laughs on my close-ups. But how am I going to make this work? Because when you're doing a live comedy, if you're a frame early, you're telling what something's coming, you're anticipating. If you're a frame late, you miss it. So there's only like one hundredth of a second when you can make the right cut. And I said, how am I going to pop in on Robin and be on the money live in the editing room, no problem. I can sit there, I can finesse it, I can get it right where I want it. So I went to see him, I went to see him, I went to see him. And finally, because he did all these impressions, he would go, the uh, Prime Minister of Canada is going, the loon is this or the loon is that, right? So finally I found out he had a tell. Finally, I caught the tell. And, the tell, and if you go back and look at this special, which was the number one selling DVD comedy special of all time, and with the extras, he interviews me, which I really liked. But 
The tell is that before he goes into an impression of anybody, he always uses the word going. Okay, and once I crack that, I can hit it live perfectly every time. So I look like a real genius, but really I was just, I knew basically when the joke started, because my AD would tell me, okay, he's going into this, and I would listen for going, and I'd be right next to my technical director, right with my hand on him, and just said, watch me, and then boom, you know, and we would hit it. And live, you know, live is, you know, I'm trying to create an edited piece live. Paint the picture to our audience of you sitting in that chair, and what are you looking at in front of you? Why, if somebody were to be standing there, you're going, one, one, three, three, seven, seven. Paint the picture like you're Vin Scully okay. of what happens in a director's chair and what's going on around you and who's around you and all the things that you okay. have to worry about. I don't know if I can quite do it as well as Vin Scully, but... You're sitting in a truck, basically. It's called a remote truck. And to your right is the technical director, Switcher, who is going to push the buttons to select the cameras that you call. To your left is your assistant director, who is reciting your plan back to you. All right? And what I do is I plan every shot because I've seen it so many times and I have tapes of it that I plan every shot and every line. You have it written down on a script for it's yourself? It's all scripted and all written down. But so you have a notebook in front of you? Yes, but I don't look at it. Because if I'm looking at my book, I can't look at the screens. So you have 90 minutes memorized. Memorized. But I have help, okay? I have big help because my assistant director is reciting my plan back to me. She'll say, you know, she'll give me the word. She'll count down the bars of music, whatever it might be. You know, you're going to Keith in four bars, three, two, one, you know. So she's reciting my plan. Now, when I did Garth Brooks in Central Park live in front of a half a million people, you know, the plan went bad right on the first shot. Tell our audience what happened. Well, I had all these cameras on rails and... This was inspired by the Olympics when I used to watch them do the 60-yard dash and they have a rail camera and it would be trucking right with the guy. So the background was moving right with him. It's a spectacular shot. He had this 200-foot stage, which he would sprint across, and I wanted to track him. So I had these four rail cameras, and the first time I took one, it was, you know, it went around a curve and it took off and just, kept going off the track into the sky and uh i said okay this is the kind of night it's gonna be but it could have hit and killed somebody it could have but it was uh you know it turned out to be one of the most magical things i'd ever done and that's the other part of my mo is i always try to put magic into everything Try to make it magical. That's kind of an intangible thing to describe. But you didn't plan the magic of the thing going off the rails. No, but I knew what to do when it happened. Okay? I knew how to shift into a magical situation because I had a plan. I could always go back to that plan. So I was improving for a few minutes and then went right back into the plan. So all my music videos, all my specials, Dane Cook had magic. They had my magic. I can't explain what that is. I hope it doesn't sound egotistical, but that's what I do. That's my real talent. 
is I'm able to sprinkle my little fairy dust on it. But I think that's only as a result of the preparation. If I were to sit you down over a period of a week and we had this symposium where I made you watch every one of your comedy specials. Love to. From start to finish. Tell me the one that you would be the most proud of in terms of you as a director, not necessarily the talent, but you as a director, and tell me the one where you'd look at it and you'd be like, I can I tell you I, the I riskiest I one. On that one. I can tell you the riskiest one. Uh -huh. The riskiest one was Chris Rock killed the messenger. It was shot in South Africa. It was shot in London and it was shot in New York. And it was Rick Rubin's idea to do it in three countries. It was my idea to weave it into one hour. So literally in the middle of the words, I would go from London to New York or from South Africa to New York or to London, okay? And it was really brave of Chris because it pretty, he was pretty much announcing that he did have a show. You know, most comedians want your audience to think that it's fresh and new every single night. But he was admitting that I have a set show. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it, um, it polarized people. Some people really loved it. Some people really hated it. But I like the idea that I get love and hate because I think that's what makes a hit. At least they're not bored. Well, my feeling about Chris Rock is always the same Jay Moore has this great expression when he does a joke and somebody's like, ooh, he looks at the crowd and he says, what did you write today? And so with Chris Rock, it's like this guy, well, let's say he goes on the Academy Awards. Well, he spent too much time talking about the issue. Well, to me, I don't care whether I'd prefer it a certain way or not a certain way. I'm looking at a genius and that genius makes a decision and he doesn't do the show for the 90 million people. He does the show like Marty Colner does his specials for himself. For himself. Right. And an artist has gotten to that point. He's got the get out of free jail card. He can do whatever he wants. I remember one time I asked him, listen, I love what you did in that last special. But why did you roll out with 10 minutes of Michael Jackson jokes? And he looked at me and he smiled. He said, because I can. If I want to do Michael Jackson jokes and it makes me laugh and it's funny, I'll do them. And I'll do the best fucking Michael Jackson jokes that anybody ever did. I was really honored to work with him. I thought it was a real milestone in my comedy career. You know, at the time when I was working with Carlin, I didn't realize. You know, I did the first ever comedy special for HBO. The first comedy special on HBO was in 1975, and it was called An Evening with Robert Klein. That was, I can't stop my leg. It was shot at Haverford College, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, okay? I had been a sports director, but part of my deal being exclusive to HBO was I would do their entertainment stuff. So I did this show with Robert Klein. There wasn't enough close-ups in it. You know, there was, it was all kinds of messed up stuff. But I felt it had magic. So when I turned it into my boss at HBO, a guy named Harlan Kleinman, he fired me. 
He said, this is all wrong. I said, no, it's, it's magical. It works, okay? You, you can't feel that way. I know it's not traditional, but there is no tradition. We're making this up. We're inventing how to do this. And we go back and forth. I, I just left WBZ in Boston, and I called my ex-wife, who was my wife at the time, and said, think I can get my job back? Now picture this. It's in New York. I'm living in Boston. It airs on December 31st, 1975. I'm all alone in a hotel room. It's freezing cold. I think I don't have a job. I'm hoping I can get my $14,000 a year job back. I've lost my opportunity in the Big Apple. And the next day, John O'Connor of the New York Times wrote four columns on it and said, program marked by innovative process. I don't know where HBO got Marty Colner, but they better find a way to keep him. <laughs> I went from 35000 a year to 300000 a year. That day, they fired my boss and gave me a series called On Location. The next one was George Carlin. Incredible. And that's the story. That's how it started. And it was shot at Haverford College because that's where Jerry Levin went to school. And he was the head of HBO at the time. I think there were only eight or nine of us working there, you know, because it had magic. It had something. Okay. It had that intangible. If I can create that intangible, even the audience is not aware of it. All those Aerosmith videos, the same thing, you know, crying one video of the year. Alicia Silverstone was 16 years old. Liv Tyler was 16 years old. When I look back on it, I could have gone to jail. I didn't even realize how old they were because they acted so old. You know, I didn't even think about it. That but. was the one they were driving in the car in the farm fields. And, yeah, and the that guy was crazy. In the tractor. That was crazy. Did you cast yeah. the roles? Yes. And when I cast Liv Tyler, I didn't know it was Stephen Tyler's daughter. Oh, so she wasn't given the role. No, I didn't know. I cast her. I saw her in a Pantene commercial, and I thought her dark hair and Alicia's blonde hair would make a great foil. Where did you find the guy in the tractor? Well, one of the people I cast in that video is a guy named Josh Holloway. Interesting. Where later went on to be big star of Lost. Interesting. He was the guy in the diner. I don't know where I found the guy in the train. You know, I found him somewhere. I don't know. But I remember casting Josh Holloway. Do but... you have a horrible time casting these music videos with yes. all the girls in the bikinis? Was that hard for you? Actually, it's harder than you think because the I try not to be a misogynist when I'm doing this, and that's what I liked about the Aerosmith videos. It was the First time that a woman was a protagonist in a video, strong and not a sexual object. And I was guilty of that too, back in the White Snake days and the Scorpions days. But I had decided that it was in the 90s, it was too much, and it was time to make a change. Steven Tyler didn't understand it. When I sent him that video, and I always sent them when I was finished, I always sent, I always shot the band in a separate location than I did the concept. Cause I didn't want to get them, I didn't want them involved. Now, before it started, we would have conversation about what it was gonna be. But once I started, I didn't, I just wanted to be in my own little team. And to this day, there's no better satisfaction than the end of shooting a 35 millimeter day of film and accomplishing something and capturing something and making art. There's not a better feeling in the world than that. It's just the most satisfying feeling you can possibly 
imagine. Is there a technique that it's called for a director when the band is in the separate location and then the story is being played out and moving pictures as opposed to the band like Macklemore who's in the actual, he's acting out the stuff and he's singing as well when he's doing his stuff. Is it called something? Is there a technique to that? I don't think, I don't know if it's a technique. I never even really thought about it. I just wanted autonomy. That was my whole point. I knew that if they got involved, that there'd be agendas. And I remember when the drummer used to call me up and say, my kids are embarrassed. There's not enough of me in there. And I said, well, unfortunately, you're part of the LI3. He said, what's that? I said, the least interesting three. (laughs) (laughs) I said, if you give me something that I can use, you know, I'll put it in. But I'm not going to put it in just to make you happy. And thankfully, they had a manager named Tim Collins who understood that. Of course. And he said, look, if you hire Marty Collner, this is the what it has to be. If you don't want that, hire somebody else. He represented them for many, 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 many years. Many and years. was responsible also for being an inspiration to helping them all get sober. He got them all sober. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, yeah, incredible he got them all sober with a guy named Bob Timmons, who now has since passed away from cancer. But when I met them... They were living in $200 a month apartments. On Commonwealth Avenue. That's right. right by they, where I live. And lived. they had $200 a week allowance. And this is after they had already sold 40 million records. They had blown it all, all right, through drugs. Aerosmith or Steven Tyler. But I saw him and I said, oh, this is a star. And I said, I want to work with these guys. The next day, they were at my house in California. And I had this big, beautiful house in Beverly Hills. And Steven Tyler got on his knees and said to me, I want a house like this. And I said, by the time we're finished, you'll have five houses like this. And that's what happened. First one we did was Dude Looks Like a Lady. I think I did like 15 or 16 Aerosmith videos. And, uh, you know, it was easy. It was hard, but it was easy because they were so talented. But they had sold 40 million records and they were living on Commonwealth Avenue. Yeah. I actually went back and did a video in that place they were living in called Sweet Emotion. Yeah, I was living at 1056. They were at 1050. Or... You were in Boston? Yeah, I was there during that time. Yeah, I love Boston. All right, let's go way, way back to the Midwest. Okay. Your mom, your dad growing up, what kind of socioeconomic background? What inspired you to get in this crazy, crazy business? All right, this is a really interesting story. My parents were divorced. How old were you when they were divorced? I never saw my father from the time I was two years old. He died when I was 10. And in those days, I'm dating myself, but in those days, divorce was not the norm. It was the exception. And... I never, my dad left. He was very, very, very wealthy. He built and designed the first shopping center in the world. There's Colner Construction. There was the Colner Building in Chicago. My great grandmother was one of the founders of Adassa. I mean, they were really important in the, forma- in the uh, formation of Israel. They bought and sold governors. They, they, they were on top of Chicago society. My mother, who never got any money, we lived, I would say, lower middle class. And that was a stretch. Okay. She used to take three buses to work. I was kind of a latchkey kid. So he didn't take care of her after the divorce? No. You know, I never was mad at him, never angry at him. I didn't know him, so I had nothing to be angry at. But 
when I was when he died when I was ten, the family said, "Oh my God, he's got this son. We have to culture him up." So from the time I was ten to the time I was eighteen, every summer I would spend in Chicago for three months. They wanted to culture me up to my Chicago family because they were so wealthy and so in the arts, and you know there was a Hattie Colner Theater. But they never sent money to your mom to help her. They never sent. He didn't. He wasn't supposed to die, but they never sent money to help her. I don't know the. I don't know the circumstances of the breakup, so I don't know why. I never wanted to know, so I didn't ask. But I would go from my house in Cincinnati, Ohio, where there was pictures on the wall from like Kmart of ships and furniture didn't match and silverware that had been stolen from restaurants by my mom and sweet and low packs and you know it was really kind of a tough upbringing and all of a sudden i would get to the airport in chicago and i'd get picked up by archie the limousine driver and taken to the penthouse at the drake hotel where there were real picassos real monets real chagalls butlers fine china it was just eye-popping the difference. And when I, when I didn't realize until later was that's where I developed my eye because the, uh, the difference was obvious. Even though I always wanted to go back to Cincinnati where I was Charles in charge, I developed a tremendous eye for art and beauty by being exposed to it in Chicago and then going back to Cincinnati to the $2 pictures on the wall. So I didn't know, but that's what happened. That's how I got developed an eye. Wow. Okay. So is that interesting? That is interesting. Okay. Good. So how does that translate into your career? What's the well, first I got movie first you made? Got, I first got known in my career for making women look beautiful, because when I was first... that by just standing next to them. <laughs> I'd like to think so, okay, but. Just you know, because that's my technique. Well, that works for you. But you know, because I had an eye, I developed a way of making people like Diana Ross and Gladys Knight, you know, look better than they ever looked before. So I got a big reputation. But before that, I want to know if you'll oblige me. How do you get to be directing the Celtics at Boston Garden? Okay, I was working in Cincinnati, Ohio. And by the way, that's why I always was so excited. And I wanted to work with you, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I am going to tell you this. I didn't want to work with you because you work with the Rolling Stones. I didn't want to work with you because you'd work with all these huge people, George Carlin and the Round. I wanted to work with you for a reason that I've never told you before. The Celtics? I wanted to do something for you i knew you'd do a great job and obviously hiring you and having dane meet you and he'd want to work with you that was a given you were going to do a great job and everything was fine but in the back of my mind that wasn't the reason why i was hoping that you would be the guy to do it in the back of my mind i said to myself this is going to be one of the greatest moments of his life like it is for me because i started in a comedy club in a basement in Alston, Massachusetts. And I used to scrounge up my money and scalp tickets to the Celtics and go to the old Boston Garden. And this was a place that was just the temple to me. 
And here in the beginning of your career, I knew that you'd worked at Boston Garden. You directed sporting events there. And I was hoping that you would get the chance to go full circle and do the special there. And I knew it would be emotional for you. It was. It was very emotional. I thank you for that. I really do. And uh, so. But how do you get to that stage from the Midwest? Well, okay. Here's the story. When I went to school, I was pretty much a bum. Even though I had been in a few plays and studied communications, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Everybody thought I would end up in jail or dead. You had no idea? None. Zero. And to this day, I'm a big believer is when you find what you're supposed to do, you're good at it. And I encourage my kids, you know, just keep trying things till you find something you're passionate about. My mother, who used to fill me with these cliches every night, which I used to hate, which turned out to be the foundations of my life, like, for instance, a man who doesn't build castles in the air doesn't build them anywhere, taught me how to dream and to think big. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't even understand it. But she was, um, of her many jobs, one of her jobs was she was the regional manager for TV Guide magazine in Cincinnati, Ohio, southwestern Ohio. She was really worried about me. She said, okay, how about a job in a TV station? I said, okay, why not? Let me go. She said, go interview him. I went and interviewed this guy from Charleston, South Carolina. He was in a promotion guy named Gus Bailey. He says, well, I think we can give you a job. So I got a job as a prop boy on the Nick Clooney show, George Clooney's father. And George was a little seven-year-old running around the studio at that time. Who knew? But... I walked into this station, WCPO, and the first day I was there, there was a plane crash at the Greater Cincinnati Airport in Kentucky, and I never saw the action. It was like broadcast news. I mean, people were running around and everything, and I walked into this Nick Clooney show, and the applause meters were on, and the applause was going, and, and it hit me. Okay, it hit me. They couldn't get me out of there. I was there I was there 24 hours a day. I slept there. 7 weeks later I was directing. Okay? It was like, "Oh, this is what you're supposed to do." So now I'm in Cincinnati. My boss was a guy named Bob Gordon who was to the right of Attila the Hun politically. And, you know, used to have him make us keep our hair short. I had long hair. I would grease it up and everything and wear a tie and jacket all the time. But over time, I had become the best director there. So I went for a raise because I wanted to make $200 a week because I started out at $89 a week. And when I directed, my first job was a one-camera thing called the All Night Theater. And I'll never forget, I had this book in my hand from Zettel, this production book. And I was telling the guy, pan left, dollar left. He said, listen, you little prick. He said, you just shut up and we'll teach you what to do. I said, okay, okay. So they taught me. They made TVs TVs out of hangers and taught me shot composition. They took me under their wings. So I went to get a raise. He told me, I'm not giving you a raise. I don't don't reward bad behavior. He had a picture of Jerry Gudger Hoover and Barry Goldwater on on his wall. Had a gun in his desk. 
and his desk sat about three feet above you when you sat next to him so he could feel omnipotent. He said, I said, okay, I quit. And I started looking for a job and I found this ad in Broadcasting Magazine for a job that paid $13,500 in Cleveland, Ohio at a UHF station called WUAB, but you would direct commercials and learn lighting. So I, I took that job and I hated it. I hated it, I was miserable. I hated Cleveland, I hated the station, I hated the people. It was like, I was dying. And then, but one of the directors, a guy named Ron Demarias from Cincinnati, was working at BZ in Boston. And he called me one day and he said, hey, Marty, there's an opening up here. What do you think? That Celtics need a director. I said, are you kidding me? I said, how do I get that job? So they flew me up there. They interviewed me. I did well in the interview. They liked me. They raised me from thirteen five to 14000 I was really excited. And I got the Celtics. Who were the starting five when you took over then? Let's see. Dave Cowens, JoJo White, Charlie Scott, John Havlicek, and Don Nelson, who I won't say what I did after practice with him every night. Let's just say it was very herbal. And uh, they didn't have drug testing back then. A new buddy. Not a drug anyway, you know. So that's that was the starting five. And Red Auerbach was a general manager. And I was Jewish and he was Jewish. And he liked me and he took me under his wing. And I used to drive him to Washington where he lived. And say, I like you, kid. I like you, kid. So for three years, I was the director of the Celtics until I had this. I had two. How close did they come to winning a championship they in those won. years? In 81, right? 75. 75. Yeah, 76. Was that the first year you were doing it? They won the championship? Year, the third year. They won. Incredible. The so you coach was Tommy Heinsohn, and they used to, John Havocek used to tell me, we win in spite of him. They didn't like him. Hondo. Straight man. The most underrated player. I used to hang with Paul Silas and Paul Westfall. Those were my buddies. So at that time, I had two offers because I became very well known because I would do things like isolate away from the ball. And so I had an offer from NBC Sports to be the guy that would do the World Series, the Kentucky Derby, the Super Bowl, blah, blah, blah. And for the third of the money, this little upstart cable company called HBO, where I would be responsible for the look in the network, the feel in the network. I would get all the entertainment specials, you know, that music, da 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 that's the stuff I picked. And I said, I want this. I want to be a big fish in a little pond. Wait a second. You get offered a job at NBC Sports to do the World Series. Right. And all these major sporting events. How much money were you being offered by NBC? 85. 85,000. And what were you offered by this little company, HBO, that was just started? 35. 35. And you took the 35,000. I did. Without any events at all, nothing, and you took it. I took it. First job was producing Wimbledon. Do you know why you took it? Because you take risks, Marty Colner. Right. I took a shot. 
what you believe in. I love that. That message is so important. I took All right. a shot. So your first event was Wimbledon. You never Wimbledon. shot tennis before. No, I produced it. I I didn't direct it, but I produced it for HBO. And at that time, I put this guy. I used to we used to do the semifinal, the quarterfinals, and the semifinals. NBC would do the finals, and you know I would pick the matches, and I picked this kid from. Douglaston, New York, to beyond, name was John McEnroe, and it turned out to have a pretty big career. You were responsible for this, and you would probably orchestrate all the tantrums. No, but I certainly encouraged him. You can't be serious. You know, that was, yeah, he was, he was amazing. One of my favorite comedy lines, Wendy Liebman doing impressions. Of McEnroe? John McEnroe having sex. Fuck you, it was in. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never, I'll never forget that. That's a great line. Um, but the first year I did it, it was the 100th anniversary, and it was won by Arthur Ashe and Virginia Way. The late Arthur Ashe. The late, great Arthur Ashe. And I loved it. You know, I absolutely loved it, adored it. But HBO liked the work I was doing, and, uh, you know, they took me in, and uh, next thing I knew, I was running the place. And um, kind of. You know, not really, but at least the entertainment part turned out to be a prophetic decision. And then how I left HBO, I had been there eight years. I was exclusive. And in that eight years was the time where you almost got fired. I only got that one time after that. No more firings after that. You know, I was, I was, I, they were proud of me. I was their little artist star. And I used to love it because I'd go into work like this and they'd all be in suits and ties and I would laugh to myself thinking, hey, I'm making more money than any of these guys. But I was here, I moved to California, started HBO West. I got divorced. I was out here with my kids. I called my boss, Michael Fuchs. I said, how about HBO West? He said, okay. So here I am living in a rented house in Beverly Hills. And they had this thing called the Z Channel. I don't know if you remember it or not. It was a cable channel owned by Jerry Parencio. And this music video came on. Betty Davis Eyes, Kim Carnes. And I lost, lost it. I said, oh my God, they're breaking every rule. They're crossing the line. They're jump cutting the editing. These are all things you're not supposed to do. And it was working. And I just thought, oh, my God. You know, I've always been about, you know, research, surveillance, execution, and domination. So I said, I don't really want to do this. So it would be like, oh, my God, how do they do that? Or no, I wish I could do that. How do they do that? Oh, I know how they do it. Oh, I can do that. I can do it better. But that would be over a period of much study. In many months or years, you know. Was this the first director you ever saw their work where you said, wow, that guy's better than me right now? Second. Who was the first? First was a guy named Dwight Hemian. And what was this director's name that did this? Russell Mulcahy. Got it. Were you the kind of guy who said, you know, I got to meet with these guys? Or were you the kind of guy that just observed from a... Just observed. And then I'm competitive, so then I wanted to beat him. You know, and, but I saw this guy's work and I went, holy shit, how the hell am I ever going to beat what this guy did? And how can I do that? That's amazing. So I called HBO and I was under contract till September and I quit. 
to my, and I was making seven figures at the time. And I said to my wife, who's my current wife, what do you think about this? Wait, so you're making over a million dollars or at least a million dollars a year. Right. A job you started making 35000 Correct. Eight years later, you're making at least a million. Yeah. And you quit without another gig. And I'm without another gig. Another risk. Another risk. So I flew to New York and met with Amit Erdogan, Atlantic Records. Okay, he was the president at the time? Yes. Or chairman. I think Doug Morris was the president. And I, and I had a little bit of a reputation from all the music and comedy I'd done at HBO. And I said, look, I want to do one of these music videos. He said, great. He said, we got three bands. Pick one. One was a band called Zebra. One was a band called In Excess. And the other was this little bar band out of Long Island, which I kind of liked because it had music and comedy called Twisted Sister. And I did this video called We're Not Gonna Take It. So taking Zebra aside, you decided to take another band that wasn't very popular and well-known as another opposed risk. to going with In Excess, and you took another risk. Another risk. And we did We're Not Gonna Take It. It was a true collaboration with Dee Snyder. I have to say, it was not an autonomous thing. It was a true collaboration. He came and lived at my house for a month. Um, I'm having dinner with him this week. I'm still very close to him. And... We did this video, we're not going to take it. It had a narrative in the top, you know, it had a whole story. And boom, did it take off. For the next 10 or 12 years, I had no manager, no agent, just MTV. And I never stopped working. I finally stopped doing videos in 1996 over a censorship issue. I had gotten to a point where I knew how to beat them every time. But this was a, a point where I had to take out a shot that was a joke that set up the next 10 shots. And I had to make the joke less. It was a joke with Liv Tyler and a guy in a gas station. He had made an obscene gesture. They made, and she jumped and surprised and made me change it. And I said, I'm done. At the same time, ironically, Michael Fuchs, my boss at HBO, who I had not really talked to, since I left, because he was my best friend, and then he was really angry at me, he said, you still interested in doing any concert work? I said, what you got? <laughs> so he said, well, I'm having a problem with this artist, and I need an adult. I said, who's the artist? He said, Madonna. And at that time, Madonna was Madonna. She was the hottest thing since sliced bread. So I said, yeah. Uh, Still yes. could sell out Dodger Stadium. Yes. I said, let's go. I went down to Australia, and uh, you know, I fought with her. Now, wait. So the director that was on, that was hired to work with her, she fired him? Well, not in the beginning. So you went down with another director? I went down to produce it. Ah. So the other director, wasn't he kind of bummed out that another director was sort of? Well, he was kind of bummed out. His name was Aldo Michelli. And he was a close friend of Madonna's, but he was the guy who did her, her tour cameras. So he uh, For those of you who don't know, when you go to the arena and you see a show, the screens are up, 
and there's actually the concert is being broadcast on these screens. There's actually a director a lot of times in a little cubicle the size of a podium at a restaurant. Right, and, he's got four cameras, yeah. you know, and he knows the show, obviously, but he's got four cameras, and HBO was really worried about this. Just to come full circle and interrupt, Dane Cook's special, Live from Madison Square Garden, we hired the director. It was a very innovative thing where we decided to take the video footage from a concert that was being directed live by a video director in an arena that had never done any television at all. But we wanted the feel of what was happening in the arena from that director. And we actually hired that guy, got the footage that we bought for $85,000, him and the footage. And that was the special Cool. Live from Madison Square Garden. That's Again, great. when you watch it, you'll see that it's not like a professional thing, but everything we got to do with Dane was a little different, as well as the one that we did with you from the Laugh Factory, which was never been done before. One camera, one shot the entire time. Talk about a from risk. beginning to end. No break, no, no cuts. cut, no nothing. Perfectly timed to when he walked out. That yeah, was great. Never been done, and that was incredible too. But go back to your story. You guys like to take risks too. Yes. Right. So that's what I always like to do. So that's why you're successful. So until this podcast comes out, then I'm going down. This is a risk you should never have done. So HBO was really concerned. You know, they were spending all this money on Madonna, and they knew this guy really didn't know what he was doing. Said you have to go down there and make sure it goes well. So she knows you're coming down. Tell me about your first meeting, the first time you walk in. Set it all up for us. Okay, I walk in and I said to him, I'm going to provide you with so many toys and so much stuff that you're going to be able to do this so well that you're going to get a big name for yourself. And I brought in 20 cameras, the cable cam, and I gave him so many things but what i didn't realize was that instead of embracing it he was resenting it and he called madonna and said this guy's getting in my way he's making me do things that i shouldn't do it's going to get fucked up I, I don't want him around she called me gave me so much shit on the phone said what are you doing to my director i said well he doesn't know what he's doing you know, this is a big deal. So I said, okay. So I said, you cut the guy's legs out to his boss. I just told the truth. So I said, okay. She says, will you stay out of his way? I said, okay. I turned to my guys who were with me. I said, let's just let him fry. Okay, let's see what happens. HBO always does two shows. They did a Friday night show and a Saturday night show. The reason why HBO does two shows and they have a backup and a lot of times, a lot of specials that you see, believe it or not, they only had the money to do one show. I'd say at least 33% of the hour specials that you see on Epics or Comedy Central or whatever were ones where people just had the money to do one show. Oh, more, maybe more. Maybe more, maybe 50%. Yeah. And if the sound goes out, that happens and you That's have to it. go back and put them back on stage with no audience and recreate it right. and do whatever you can. You end up spending the same amount of money anyway. So I'll never forget this. So 
Friday night we do the show. Now Madonna is really hating on me at this point. All right, she thinks I'm a nuisance. We're fighting about her lighting. We're fighting about everything. This is an artist I had a problem with. It's Friday night in Australia. The show is being beamed back to the executives at HBO. Right? They want to watch the rehearsal show. To say it was a disaster would be an understatement. All right? HBO goes crazy. Fuse calls Madonna and says, you have to look at this because it's your career. She looks at it. I get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning from Madonna going, Marty, it's Mo. And I said, Mo who? She says, don't be a brat. I said, <laughs> I said, what? She says, will you direct tomorrow? Now, remember, I had done no preparation. I still know I'd do a better job, but I'd done no preparation, and this was really against my mantra of work because that's all I'm, I'm all about preparation. And I said, okay, I gotta move some cameras, I gotta do some things. And I said, okay, I'll somehow I'll muddle through this. I had, what I did do was the night, the Friday night before I had recorded and isolated every camera to a tape machine. So we had it, okay, all the stuff he wasn't using, all the great stuff that was being fed to him that he wasn't cutting in because it was too many cameras for him to handle. You know, I, when I did Justin Timberlake in Madison Square Garden, I had 45 cameras, and the crew sent me a sweatshirt that said, I only had one more camera. <laughs> but, um, um, which, by the way, is my proudest uh, concert I've ever directed. And um, it was also in the round. Um, that's why I had so many cameras. I know you invited me to see the show in Boston. Right. It was the week that we were doing the Dane Cook thing, and you knew you were doing it in the future, and you invited me to see the show, and it was amazing. And you went. Yes, you had yeah. the 360 screen right. above. Right, So I had to treat it like it was eight different stages, and you know, that's why I had all the cameras. He would appear and disappear like a magician. Right. And it's great. I don't know if you ever saw the final cut. Yes. Really great. I did. So I have notes for you. <laughs> I'm not, I won't delete them. So... Um, I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I said, no, I'm going to screw it up, but I'll do the best I can. And it was being done on a very hollow cricket ground in uh, Sydney. So I get up the next morning and start doing a rain dance. Okay, I wanted it to rain out. I didn't want to do it. I was afraid to do it. I was saw, that the first time you were ever afraid to do anything? Ever. I was like, you know, I actually did a rain dance, and it rained. And not only did it rain, it deluged. And it deluged so much that they canceled the concert because the grounds were going to get trampled on. So they said, you're done. So now, because of the time difference, I have 18 hours to put together the Friday night concert from the reels and turn it into a show. I felt confident about that. So I, we rented out entire editing house in Sydney and sat there for the next 18 hours with Madonna. And he wanted to come in. I said, he's not coming. She made him sit in the lobby. The director that got fired. 
Yeah, Aldo. But she sat in the bay with you. Yep, didn't say a word. Once she saw what I was doing, she didn't say a word. Oh, yeah, she sat in the bay right next to me. But I was going so fast and making it out so fast, she would just go, yeah, I like it, yeah, I like it, yeah, I like it, yeah, I like it. And um, turned out getting nominated for a Grammy. And, uh, you know, Lloyd Braun made my deal. That's why you paid me so much money, because he set a floor for me. And he was Seinfeld's manager. And uh, I went back and started working for HBO again. It was unbelievable. And that's pretty much how it happened. Yes. Paid more money for Marty Kallner to direct the Dane Cook special then I would say over 75% of all comedy specials cost from cradle to grave. We did charge money. And worth every penny. Aww. We're going to go with six degrees of separation here. All We're right. going to mention the name of somebody, and I want you to say anything that comes to mind. It could be one word, a sentence, okay. a paragraph, a story. You got it. Anything. Okay. This is hard. Jerry Seinfeld. Funniest guy off camera I ever met. First had him in a young comedian show. He uh, hired me because I hadn't, he was, he had just finished his, um, he was on the last week of his very successful sitcom and the whole country was talking about the finale. And he was talking to about 30 directors, and I had an idea that he liked for the opening. It was, called, it was called I'm Telling You for the Last Time. I said, well, let's hold a funeral for the act. He says, you're hired. <laughs> Friend of mine, like him very much. Took another risk. Very, took another risk. Steven Tyler. Mixed feelings about Steven. I was actually closer to Joe Perry. Than Steven Tyler. I think he's really talented. I think he's a little bit of a, I shouldn't say this, but I think he's a little bit of a Mick Jagger wannabe. And um, while well, I liked him as a performer, I thought he was very flawed as a human being and felt the need to be a rock star rather than an artist, to be really honest about it. Who's a better performer? Not somebody who orchestrates or writes or whatever. Who's a better performer, Steven Tyler or Mick Jagger? Not even close, Mick Jagger. Okay. I like Steven. He's a nice guy. Why is he flawed as a human being? He's got a lot of demons. So do you. I didn't say I wasn't flawed. Okay. Bon Jovi. Nice guy, insecure. Talented. I remember Jeffrey Ross had this great joke when he was talking about the Montreal Just for Last Festival. He said that a lot of comedians come into Montreal through the airport. They have to go through an insecurity checkpoint. <laughs> That's part of their charm. Paul Simon. Super talented. Wonderful human being. I worked with him a couple times. I did his Unplugged, but I also did a special with him from Philadelphia, from the Tower Theater. You know, it was about the best, one of the best musicians and musical bands I've ever worked with. Steve Gadd on the drums and Tony Levin on the bass. Stevie Nicks. Changed my life. 
I wasn't really into rock and roll. I didn't know who Stevie Nicks was. I was just, uh, at that time I was working for HBO and they were like a magazine company that gave you assignments because they were owned by Time Life. I was just working on Camelot on Broadway with Richard Harris, which almost killed me because it was so hard. And they said, your next assignment, Stevie Nicks. So all blurry-eyed, I got on an airplane and Irving Azoff, now, those days, you know, met me at the plane. Irving represents the Eagles and is one of the greatest. One of the greatest managers of all time. And he met me at the plane when I got off. He said, let's go see Stevie. And I said, where is he? <laughs> and he cracked up. And uh, I went and met her at Dantana and didn't leave her house for two months. Did not have an affair with her. But... Did I you want never, to? Um, oh, yeah, she was a goddess. But I didn't try. But I was so mesmerized by her magic that I thought the whole music industry was going to be like she was. Nobody's like she is, but she's why I got into rock and roll and many other things. And uh, I just absolutely adore her. Adore, adore, adore. Got it. Chris Rock. Royalty. Share. Bigger than life. Amazing. Diva. Super, super, superstar. Did a bunch of projects with her. Did three videos and a special. ZZ Top. Funny ZZ Top story. Three o'clock in the morning, uh, Billy Gibbons and I had been rapping all night long. He calls all the crew together, and he says, we've decided that we want to give Marty a present. And uh, we couldn't decide what to give him. So we decided we were either going to give him a brand-new Corvette or this big book called The Celestine Flo uh, Prophecies. And he's so intellectual, we decided to give him the book. <laughs> Which pissed me off. <laughs> Bette Midler. Um, difficult. He had to earn her respect. Ultimately, the show was nominated for 10 Emmys. She won the Emmy for Best Performer. I was nominated for Director, didn't win, but she got on stage primetime and said, this Emmy belongs to Marty, not to me. Ended up giving me a, a, um, a, picture, book. a picture frame that <laughs> said, with love, honor, and respect, I had to earn the respect from her. She was very wary, but it turned out really good in the end. Garth Brooks. Bigger than life. Got a little bit of the devil in his eyes. Calculating. Knows what he's doing. Hardest working man in show business. Did an incredible special with him, which I'm really proud of. I went to see Garth Brooks at his, right after I did Bette Midler, because he was gonna hire me to do this show in Central Park. And I walked into his production office at Fox, and he opened the conversation by saying, I don't wanna like you and I don't wanna use you. That's how it started. I said, okay. So we talked for about an hour and I said, okay, nice meeting you. And I walked out, he says, I'll see you in New York. True story. Wow. Dane Cook. 
wonderful story. I had a ball working with him. If he ever gets secure, he'll be on top of the world. I wish he trusted his material more, but I really do love him. Justin Timberlake. My favorite music special I ever did. My favorite person I ever worked with. He was a 10, a blast. I remember when he rented out a theater in Las Vegas to show everybody the special before it came on, and he bent over and whispered to me, he says, man, I really love this. And then a friend of mine met him and said, because I'd first worked with him on NSYNC, and everybody would tell him he was like Michael Jackson. I said, no, you're like Michael Jordan. And I said, I can't take the camera off you. You should be on your own. And we became friends, and I think he's a quadruple threat. Sings, he dances, he plays music, he's funny, he acts. I love him, love him, love him, love him, love him, love him. Love him. Will Ferrell. Another incredible guy, most humble, down-to-earth superstar I ever worked with. Uh, he hired me because he thought I hated George Bush more than he did, and which was true. And when he came back, I said, there's this sushi restaurant called Nozawa I'd like to take you to. He said, okay. Showed up in an old car all by himself, no entourage, in shorts, just down-to-earth, regular guy, great guy. Gene Simmons. Well, my mother always said, if you can't say anything nice to anybody, don't say anything. Okay. Your mom. Inspiration for my life. Didn't know it at the time. Bugged me. Couldn't wait to get out of there. But, but every cliche she filled me with turned out to be the cornerstone of who I am. Taught me work ethic. Taught me so much. Raised me all by herself. It was really hard for her. The late Arthur Ashe. I didn't know him that well, but I always felt lucky to be in his presence. He had a certain arrogance about himself, which was uh, charming to me. D. Snyder. Still friends to this day. Love D, love his family, love Suzette. Ended up doing a bunch of stuff with him. He's a super talent who lost it all and got it back. And uh, have nothing but respect for him. George Lopez. Funny, sometimes. Too much racist humor, in my opinion. I think that he should take it easy on the white people. And uh, he's a funny guy. Billy Crystal. Love Billy. Did his first special for HBO at the Mayfair Theater the night he impersonated Muhammad Ali, and we had Muhammad Ali there. The Mayfair Theater in Santa Monica. It's a beautiful 200-seat theater that's been closed down for about since the earthquake, I think. And I did something there with Dave Chappelle, I remember. It was the most beautiful small theater you'll ever be in. It is. And... Uh, Billy and I uh, are still close. We're managed by the same people. Unfortunately, one of our managers passed away last year, Larry Bresner, who I loved. And, uh, you know, we're friends. Billy and I are friends. Obviously, a lot of people have passed away in the music business that you work with, in the comedy business that you've worked in. How do you deal with a situation where your longtime managers 
you lose one of them and do you feel like as an artist you're lost or is it you're more feeling like for the family of like what happens at the moment because you are an artist and your mom and all our parents i can safely say most of them never taught us how to deal with tragedy and death i didn't deal with it well uh, it was a combination of everything you said i felt bad for his family i felt bad for myself uh, he's someone who I talk to every day. And he was a private person, and a lot of people had said, and I don't know if you went through the same thing, that they didn't even know that he was going to die. They didn't even know that he was really that sick. Well, I thought he was going to get better. That's what I was led to believe. But he didn't. And four months before that, he was boxing at 72 years old and playing tennis every day and robust. You know, it's a lesson that life can be snatched from anybody at any time. And I'm still have not accepted it, that he's not there. I have a hard time talking about it. He was uh, a mentor. He was the best tire kicker I knew, the best script doctor I know, and my biggest champion. So to lose someone like that is, as an artist, it's extremely difficult to get over, especially when they're your biggest champion. You know, I mean, he was the one that would tell, you're lucky to be with Marty. You know, that he was that, that's the way he felt. And I, because of men in my life had been so messed up, he was almost like a father figure. I miss him. God, so does everybody else in this business. Red Hour back character crazy character but boy was he smart one time when i moved to la i became a laker fan immediately and the lakers were playing the celtics and red said to me do you want to go and i said yeah and he gave me tickets and i sat there and cheered the lakers on and he called me the next day screaming at me saying what are you doing he said, I gave you tickets. You were sitting next to the new owner of the Celtics. I was cheering for the Lakers. <laughs> wow. Keith Richards. Rebel. Super talented. Legend. And a class by himself. George Carlin. One of the top three comedians of all time. Seven words you can't put on television, I put on television. You were the guy that directed that. I was. And uh, you want to know what they were? They were shit, piss, funk, cunt, cocksucking motherfucker tits. His wife became my producer, Brenda, for 10 years. His daughter calls me Uncle Marty. He was the best man at my wedding. Pee Wee Herman. Paul Rubens. Found him at the Groundlings, um, went to see him at, uh, with Michael Fuchs in a midnight show. Fuchs fell asleep. When we walked out, he said, how was he? I said, we got to do a special with him. And that's how he was born. Diana Ross. Took a big risk with Diana Ross. It was a, a watershed moment for HBO in the music world. Um, the engineers told me, look, she's wearing white. She can't wear white because the cameras in those days couldn't take white. So I said, okay, I want everything white. 
I want her costumes to be white. I want the orchestra to be dressed in white. I want the mic stand in white. I want the floor in white. I want the cord in white. And we're going to put these low contrast filters in. And it's probably the most beautiful special I've ever done. Sold for the most money in syndication in the history of music specials. Whitney Houston. <sighs> Whitney. I love Whitney. Super talented. Really funny. The first year I worked with her, I had won the uh, video of the year. And she liked to parade me around saying, this is my director. He just won video of the year. Um, unfortunately, she was surrounded by really bad people. And uh, a lot of stories about Whitney. But I just suffice to say that I really cared for Whitney a lot. Sam Kinison. Well, Sam was one of the geniuses of all time, and he was a great guy unless he was tanked up. At one point, I didn't talk to him for six months because he got tanked up and attacked me, and then he scratched on my door one day and said, can we be friends? Did an incredible video with him called Wild Thing with Jessica Hahn, and did a very famous show with Howard Stern when Sam showed up with a bunch of other comedians really drunk. And uh, it's one of the classic Howard Stern shows. Sam was unique, to say the least. He said that his favorite line was, when he was a doorman at the comedy store, I know you probably heard this, someone came up to him and said, you have any advice? He said, yeah, take fountain. <laughs> Meaning the boulevard in Los Angeles That's the quickest Andy Kaufman Andy Kaufman had a character named Tony Clifton And I decided to put Tony Clifton on a young comedian shows I used to direct those young comedian shows Where I would find people like Andy Kaufman, Robin Williams, Gallagher, Jerry Seinfeld To name a few And I put this character on Tony Clifton. I set the show to HBO. And Mike Fuchs says, what do you got this unfunny guy on for? One of these people were funny. Who is this? What's wrong with you? I said, it's Andy Kaufman. He didn't know. One day he was uh, meditating, and he had his mic on. And I walked into the truck, and they were all on the floor laughing because he was meditating, and I got really mad at everybody. but. Andy Kaufman. And why don't you share with our audience, when you did, I believe you filmed this, or if you didn't, it was filmed, when Andy Kaufman was heckled by Tony Clifton, who played Tony Clifton. Bob Smuda. Who created Comic Relief with the president of HBO, who was his former roommate in New York. Right. Chris Albrecht. Chris Albrecht. A real genius. Madonna. Difficult. Super talented. If she, if the, when she was doing her show, if someone made a mistake, she made them run the entire show in rehearsal the next day. The entire show. Driven. Britney Spears. Britney. I kind of look in her eyes and see the back of her head. Got it. When you stop after you say something, there's two words that come to my mind every time you stop. Your 
mom. I'm going to probably get in a lot of trouble for some of this stuff, <laughs> no, but you're... I've decided to be honest. I'm glad. The late Robin Williams. Nobody like him. Fastest comedian I ever worked with in my entire life. But what people don't realize is that he was completely prepared. And he worked really hard at looking like he was making it up, but he wasn't making it up. I have some stories about Robin. Robin had never been to Las Vegas. And he said to me, and he didn't remember this story when I told him about it years later. He said, let's go to Las Vegas. And this is the time we were, we were all tanked up. And I said, okay, you get the plane. It was right in the height of Mork and Mindy. You know, he was like everywhere. I said, I'm not getting on a commercial airline with you. You get the plane and I'll go. So he rented a Learjet. I think it cost like $1,800. And we go to Vegas and we walk. Every place we walk, we walk through the uh, Caesars Palace and all the pit bosses would run out to get his autograph for their kids. He was Mork. So he said... Let's get out of here. Let's go walk the streets. So we walk the streets, and a car with two hookers comes rolling up to us. And they say, hey, guys, how about a blowjob? And I say, how much? And the girl says, $100. And Robin says, I'll give you 50 And she goes, fuck you, Mork. Took off. <laughs> I got one more name for you. Okay. Marty Colner. I never believe that I'm a legend as people say I am. I don't feel like one. I believe in this town, you're only as good as your last project. So every project I go into, I'm a little nervous and a little scared that I have to be my best or I'll never work again. Your proudest moment in show business. Creating hard knocks. For this little hippie to go in front of 32 owners of the NFL and tell them that I have an idea that's good for their game and try to break through that shield is almost impossible. HBO said, we'll do it if you can get the NFL. The NFL says, we'll do it if you can get HBO. I hit neither of them, but I told them both I hit both of them. And that's how it happened. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. My biggest disappointment was when people didn't believe in me when I was a sports director, when I would move into music. And um, it fueled me during a special I did with Gladys Knight and Ray Charles at the Greek, which was my first music special. She won the Ace Award. And uh, I turned out telling a narrative at the beginning where I made Ray Charles a surprise to the audience of the Greek, but not to the people at home. And to this day, that caused a noise ordinance of the Greek and a curfew of the Greek because the place went crazy. It was Ray Charles at his height. But yes, I was told you can't do this. You're not able to do this. You know, who, who do you think you are? And they were all right, by the way. I didn't care, you know, I was gonna figure it out. What advice do you have for the young Midwesterner or anybody in this world? who's just doesn't have any idea what they're going to do in their life or this business and all the way to take the kind of journey and steps and decisions that are necessary to make to have the kind of career you have. 
also address the artist, the young artist as well, because you work with so many musicians and comedians. How do they get to the next level as well? Well, for the young artists, work every night. Go to every club. Don't stop. Just keep going and going and going. You'll get there. And for the young directors who want to be a director, start in a local station in a small town. Don't try and start in Los Angeles or New York. Learn your craft and learn it well. And that's, that's my advice. And what advice would you have for the young person who wants to be a director, producer, and get to the level that you're at and have the kind of career you have and have the kind of relationships you have with networks and artists? Be lucky. Just be lucky. Because that's an element that you can't describe and certainly affected my career. I was in the right place at the right time. Yes, you do make your own luck, but you have to have luck. You have to. And along with that luck, Marty, you did your research, you did your surveillance, you did your execution with every job you had. And in terms of this podcast, my friend, you dominated. Oh, my God. So thank you so much, What Marty. a compliment. Thank you so much. I, I didn't set out to this for that, but, you know, I, I appreciate so much. I hope I did a good job. Extraordinary. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on C.R. Reed from Poto, Oklahoma. Congratulations, C.R. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Arrow Flynn, December 18, 2014, heading reads, Get Out and Go After It, five stars. It reads, whatever you want to do with your life, listening to these stories of people chasing their dreams is inspiring. Thank you, Aero Flynn. Congratulations. As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money 
drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.